This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And this week, we go behind the scenes in our conversation with a reporter who witnessed the death of two convicted killers. After years of delay, the Trump administration has reinstituted the federal death penalty. Michael Balsamo covers the Justice Department for the Associated Press. And he traveled to the Federal Correctional Facility in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he witnessed those executions. In one case, Wesley Ira Perkey was put to death for the 1998 rape and murder of a 16-year-old girl in Kansas. Her name was Jennifer Long. He made a final statement shortly before his death, quote, I deeply regret the pain and suffering I caused to Jennifer's family. I am deeply sorry. I deeply regret the pain I caused to my daughter, who I love so very much. And he added, This sanitized murder really does not serve no purpose whatsoever. Michael Balsamo witnessed his death and the death of an Arkansas man, Daniel Lewis Lee, who killed three people. As he wrote in his story, In one week I spent more than 32 hours inside a prison and watched two men die. Our conversation begins with the individual convicted of killing a husband, his wife, and their young daughter, and the chilling account of what happened next. Daniel Lewis Lee was an avowed white supremacist who was convicted in the late 1990s of killing an Arkansas gun dealer, his wife, and his young child. Um, He was convicted in what authorities said was a plot to build a whites-only nation in the Pacific Northwest. And how did this case unfold from your perspective? What do you know about it? So this case uh, was interesting in, in the sense that there was a co-defendant who had received a lesser sentence. It was one of the things that Mr. Lee and his lawyers had raised several times. Uh, Mr. Lee obviously was convicted by a jury of his peers. Uh, he was sentenced to death in federal court. But he had raised several issues with his case after that happened. He had pointed to DNA evidence. Um, and other issues, witness issues in his case that he said the judges should have reconsidered and offered him a new uh, trial. As a reporter who has been looking into this story, any credibility to that? There, the courts had essentially ruled, a judge had essentially ruled, that if the evidence, the DNA evidence at the time was, was presented, it was possible that there would have been another outcome in the case. It was possible that Mr. Lee would not have been sentenced to death. But basically the court held uh, that the the trial was fair and that the evidence was what it was. In terms of the gun dealer, his wife and his young daughter, what do you know about them and why were they the targets? So the gun dealer, Mr. Mueller, and and his family appeared to have been targeted by by Mr. Lee and his accomplice. Um, So... Later on in the case, we did learn that that the victim's family essentially did not want the death penalty to happen. They've written uh, extensive letters to Attorney General William Barr, to President Donald Trump, essentially asking that Mr. Lee be able to serve out his sentence in federal prison um, of a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole as opposed to the death penalty. Um, They even went as far as to sue the Federal Bureau of Prisons to stop this execution from going forward. As you know, federal executions were basically put on hold for the last uh, 30-odd years. They have now resumed under the Trump administration. Why? What's the backstory? That's right. There was an unofficial federal moratorium on the death penalty for about 17 years. The last federal execution was in 2003. 
2014, there was a botched execution in Oklahoma. And at that point, the Obama administration had conducted a review. So uh, President Obama asked the Justice Department to conduct this review, looking into the death penalty, uh, to look into the protocols that were in place. And that review went on for several years. It ended just before Attorney General William Barr took office as uh, Attorney General for the second time. Um, And after that happened, the Attorney General says, you know, he reviewed the information from that investigation and and they felt comfortable that the protocols had changed. They essentially changed from a three-drug cocktail to one drug that's been used in several states. And so he scheduled the executions of five men that were initially supposed to happen in December. Um, Some of those men uh, initiated litigation against the Justice Department. They raised questions about the drug protocols. And a federal judge in Washington, D.C. held the executions, imposed an injunction. Um, And while that case played out, the Justice Department did not proceed forward. Um, About a month ago, Attorney General Barr then rescheduled the executions of four men, three who were initially included in the first list of five and one other. And uh, we saw the executions of those three men, Mr. Lee, Wesley Perkey, uh, and Dustin Lee Honkin, move forward last week. And I want to follow up on what you saw in just a moment. But if you could just explain why we are seeing so many of these federal executions in such a short period of time this month. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. Certainly this has happened before where the Justice Department has scheduled a number of executions um, within a short time period. And we've seen that in some other states as well. Um, But there are a lot of resources that go into resuming federal executions. The Bureau of Prisons had to move in dozens and dozens of staff members um, in order to carry this out. There was a essentially 40-person execution team in addition to 50 other members of the Bureau of Prisons staff to kind of help with administrative needs and other things like that. And they had to bring in about 100 other people, uh, security staff, to help secure the prison. So uh, in part, a lot of this is just logistical. Um, they, they essentially know that they have to bring in so many people in order to do this, and they want to uh, move forward to, to also kind of get them, uh, you know, the message out from the Trump administration that they are moving forward with this. They believe that they are carrying out the court's orders, that this is the duty of the Justice Department, and, and they wanted to, um, you know, send somewhat of a message, too, that, that this is resumed, that the administration believes that this is Uh, you know, it's duty to carry out the order of the court. And because these are federal executions, if you could explain, what is the role of the Supreme Court? Does the suspect have a last-minute appeal that could potentially go before the high court? Yes, so we saw that certainly happen uh, in two of these cases, in Mr. Lee's case and in Mr. Perkey's case, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled essentially in middle-of-the-night decisions, allowing both to go forward. In both of these cases, there were multiple federal courts involved. Uh, Multiple injunctions were put in place that were then appealed to circuit courts, some in the District of Columbia and others um, in other parts of the country where their cases had initially begun. Um, But ultimately, it was up to the Supreme Court, and they ruled in both cases um, after 2 a.m. to allow both of those executions to move forward. You're listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington with Michael Balsamo, who covers the Justice Department for the Associated Press. And this headline that caught so much attention, one reporter, two executions, and haunting last words. 
Walk us through what happened, what you saw, and what your reaction was. It was Monday afternoon, about 2 p.m., when we arrived at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. I was one of a small group of reporters who would witness the execution of Daniel Lewis Lee. We were brought into the media center, a small, essentially staff training center, a former bowling alley that had been converted into this training center um, and held there in a room where the Bureau of Prisons would give us a media orientation, uh, explaining essentially how the execution would happen, what protocols were going to be put in place. Um, And then we were told to surrender all of our electronics. We were loaded into two white vans that took us over to the high security penitentiary building where we underwent extensive security screening, essentially a souped up version of airport security. Um, It was so intense that they even took my glasses to x-ray them. Uh, We were brought back out into the vans. And at that point, an injunction was still in place by a federal judge in Washington. So the Justice Department could not proceed with its execution of Mr. Lee. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons brought us back to the staff training center, kind of unsure of exactly what would happen, whether the executions would move forward that day, whether the court would rule, and if so, when that might happen. Uh, we stayed there for several hours until the Bureau of Prisons finally decided that they probably should send us to get some dinner because they had not planned that there would be such an extensive delay. I left with a group of a small group of reporters we went got dinner came back um and by then it was maybe 9 p.m and we sat around in this media center waiting and waiting and waiting um and eventually by midnight we all went back to our hotels we knew that the by then the circuit court had ruled to uphold the injunction um and it was up to the supreme court at that point about 2.10 a.m., the Supreme Court issued its ruling saying that the executions could move forward. It was about a minute later that I got a phone call from an official at the Bureau of Prisons saying to come back to the prison, that the BOP was going to move forward with the execution. It was scheduled then for 4.15 a.m. So let me stop you at that point. You had left the facility. You were back in the hotel. Middle of the night, you get the call. You have to go back to Terre Haute's correctional facility, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And then what happened? We arrived back at at the prison. We're brought back through the same security screening protocol. Uh, We're loaded into the van. And instead of going back to the media center, now we drive down this road. It's pitch black. There's a low-lying fog hanging over the prison. Um, It's completely silent as we're driving down this road. And we pull up right outside of the execution chamber, this small brick building that's covered with fencing. Um, We hold there in the van for just a little while until they bring us in. We walk through a small tent um, and into a room where there are about 10 plastic chairs facing two windows in the front of this room. Um, There's a pad and pen, a hand sanitizer on the chair. I sit down um, and a correction officer closes the door and you can hear a booming click. Um, It's a large, heavy metal door, and we are locked inside uh, in this execution chamber. Mr. Lee, at that point, is strapped to the gurney on the other side of this glass. Um, We were told that he he would be in there before we would go in, but the, the curtain was still closed. 
So you didn't see if he had walked in uh, or how he was brought into the chamber? No, the Bureau of Prisons said that he had already been in place, strapped into the gurney before we were brought into the room. Any idea how long he was waiting there? So we know that Mr. Lee was in the room for at least as long as we were. Uh, When the curtain didn't rise... Uh, we kind of lost track of time, all of us. There was no clock in the room. Everyone had been told to leave their watches behind. Um, and at some point after a while, someone asked, does anyone know what time it is? And a correction officer in the back of the room looked at her watch and said, it's 6, 10 a.m. So it had been about two hours at that point. Um, and there was kind of this collective gasp in the room that we had all been there for so long um, and knowing that Mr. Lee had been scrapped in for so long. Uh, it was Almost two more hours, just a little before 8 a.m. before the curtain would rise. Um, And we would see Mr. Lee strapped in, a U.S. Marshal in the room, other Bureau of Prisons officials uh, getting ready to proceed with the execution. During that long wait, what were you thinking? Or did it seem that long? It certainly didn't seem as long as it was. Um, Certainly the first two hours did not seem anywhere near as long as they were. And I think that's why there was that kind of collective gasp from everyone that we had been there for so long. Um, None of us really knew what could have been the delay. There was an assumption that obviously was a legal issue. Uh, A reporter sitting next to me had scribbled on his notepad, legal issue, question mark, and gestured to me. And I I said, I guess so. Um, But we really had no clear indication of what was taking so long um, until just before the curtain rose. That's when a Bureau of Prisons official came in and read us a statement from the Justice Department that essentially said that the court was waiting for a mandate from a circuit court. So an injunction that had been put in place in Arkansas had been vacated, but the circuit court had not issued its mandate to the lower court to clear it. So after Mr. Lee had been strapped in, his lawyers apparently raised this issue with the Justice Department and the DOJ out of what they say was an abundance of caution, was not going to proceed until the court issued its mandate, although they were not going to unstrap Mr. Lee and essentially bring him back to a holding cell. They believe that it would be resolved quickly. Is that typical of these federal cases, or was this unusual? It certainly seemed to be somewhat unusual. Um, All of the circumstances of this seem to be somewhat unusual, but then again, the federal government is resuming executions for the first time in 17 years. Um, So it was expected that there would be some litigation, that there uh, would be somewhat of a delay. But I I don't believe that anyone, um, even the Justice Department, believed that at that late moment there would have been such an issue that that would keep Mr. Lee strapped in for so long. Can you give our listeners a sense of what the room looked like, the colors inside the room, and what Daniel Lewis Lee was looking at? Sure, yeah. It was a very small room. Uh, There were about 10 or so gray plastic chairs uh, that were facing two windows in the front. There was one restroom inside of our small room, um, and that door was painted green. The window frames were also painted green, the colors indicating um, kind of internal prison security protocols, the the green room being for the media. Um, In front of those windows, there were two large metal bars that came out about a foot or so um, that presumably would keep reporters, you know, about a foot away from the window um, if you had chosen to to get up to to watch uh, this happen and and not stay in your seat. Um, But it was a very quiet room. There were two correction officers in there with us. 
Uh, the Bureau of Prisons certainly went out with an abundance of personal protective equipment. There was hand sanitizer there, um, additional masks if we needed them, um, and a box of tissues was, was kind of on the side uh, near the window. What were you thinking? Have you ever witnessed something like this before? It was my first time as a witness to an execution, um, and obviously the federal government hasn't proceeded with one in, in almost two decades. Um, it was a chilling experience. Um, I remember thinking after the curtain came up, um, as we saw Mr. Lee lying there, um, I remember thinking, kind of standing back in my own mind, watching other reporters move around the room um, and being a little bit disturbed by that, by this idea of, uh, you know, trying to vie for a better view of someone's death. So as you point out in your story, it is 746 in the morning. Explain what happened and how did the execution take place and what were the last words of the suspect? Right. It's 7.46 a.m. and the the curtain slowly starts to rise. At that point, we had all been in the room for several hours. Uh, There were a bunch of reporters turned around looking at uh, the public affairs folks from the Bureau of Prisons. um, And one of those um, officials says, turn around and sit down as the curtain slowly starts to rise. Um, And all of our attention turns back toward the windows. And Mr. Lee is lying there on a gurney, his arms are strapped down to the sides. Uh, About half of his body is covered by a light blue sheet and he's wearing a brown t-shirt. He leans up slowly um, and there's a U.S. Marshal in the room who picks up a black telephone that's on the wall, um, picks it up and calls the Justice Command Center at, at DOJ headquarters in Washington. And the marshal's job is to ask if there are any legal impediments to move forward with the execution. Uh, he listens for about a minute or so and says, I understand there are no impediments and the execution can proceed. There's another official on the other side of Mr. Lee's gurney uh, from the Bureau of Prisons who essentially reads out Mr. Lee's name, tells him that he's been sentenced to death by a court, gives a synopsis of his crime and then asks if Mr. Lee wants to make a final statement. Uh, In that final statement, Mr. Lee leans up. We lock eyes for a moment. He says that he is not guilty of this crime. He's innocent. He points to a judge in Arkansas who he says should have uh, allowed DNA evidence in the case to proceed. He says someone should be asking the judge about that. And his last words are, you're killing an innocent man. And he says that while he, he's looking at me. What was that like when you locked eyes, he is looking at you, and his final words to you, the reporter, witnessing his death? It was an incredible moment for sure. Uh, I tried to separate in my mind that I was there to, to cover this story, to be able to tell the world what was happening. This is the first time the federal government was proceeding with an execution, like I said, in almost two decades Um, And I realized that it it was really important that every moment of this be documented. So in my mind, I tried to separate what had just happened. It wouldn't be um, until later in the day when it kind of really clicked to me what had happened. So if you could explain why the federal government allows reporters to witness these executions. It's incredibly important for the American public to understand exactly what the government is doing and how the government operates. 
Um, it's one of the most important and arguably one of the most serious duties the federal government has to take the life of an individual legally. Um, and, you know, it's important for, for Americans to understand how that process works and to be there in case it doesn't go the way that it's supposed to. There was a botched execution in Oklahoma in 2014 that initially caused this review of federal death penalty practices across the country and the federal government's review. Um, and, it, you know, lawyers for these condemned men had raised issues with the protocols that the Bureau of Prisons was going to be using um, in order to take their life. So certainly it was important uh, to be there to to see what was happening, to document this for the American people, to be, uh, you know, to write that version of history and also to ensure uh, that what we were seeing uh, was kind of the, the most humane um, thing that that could happen. Did it appear to be humane to you, Michael Belsamo? It certainly appeared that that these men were essentially going to sleep um, and were not going to wake up. Um, you could watch them take their final breaths. You could watch their chest rise up and down um, until it just didn't. Both of the men, their lips had turned blue. Their skin had changed color. Um, but I've been a crime reporter for, for years, and I've certainly seen dead bodies before, but this felt different. This was clinical. You're watching somebody die right in front of you, which is really a pretty incredible thing for a reporter to witness. Yeah, it it certainly is. And, you know, again, in that moment, you try to to separate in your mind um, exactly what's happening, right? Because, you know, reporters are are people too, and and it's hard to witness that. It's hard to watch someone die in front of you. Um, But for the same for the same reason, it's, it's important that you be able to watch what's happening, write down those details, and be able to relay to the American public exactly what happened to be able to tell this story. When Daniel Lewis Lee proclaimed his innocence, from your standpoint, having seen him for the first time, did it appear convincing? There were certainly issues, that legal issues that had been raised in his case. Um, But as someone who has kind of gone through a lot of these filings, um, it seems that the court system had worked the way that the court system was supposed to work. His case was heard. He was convicted by a jury of his peers. He was sentenced um, through the American legal system, and this was a sentence imposed by the court. Um, Obviously, as I said before, uh, Mr. Lee's co-defendant, who the Justice Department had previously described as a ringleader in this case, had not received the death penalty. He had received life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, So certainly Mr. Lee and his lawyers had argued that was unfair. Uh, But it was the the sentence of a court, and and that's what was carried out. And so after that sentence, the, the death sentence was carried out, what happened next? We were brought back out of the execution chamber, loaded back into the vans, and brought out to the media center. Um, I pretty quickly filed a story um, that we had on the wire within minutes uh, after Mr. Lee was declared dead. Um, And then we were uh, essentially told we we could leave. Um, The media center cleared out. Uh, But by then, an execution was scheduled for um, the next day. You've had a week or so to really reflect on this experience. What are your thoughts? What's your takeaway? I think it was uh, was certainly a very interesting experience to to witness 
to men's lives be taken by the federal government in, in front of me. Um, I think it, arguably the most important thing that, that came out of this is that the American public understands what happens. Um, I thought it was really a really important thing to, to be able to write a first-person piece like this um, because people don't really get to see the inside of the way that the system works. Um, in both of these cases, in Mr. Lee's case and in Mr. Perky's case, there were extensive delays. Um, we were there for hours and hours while uh, litigation made its way through the courts, while the Supreme Court ruled in the middle of the night and the federal government moved um, very quickly to carry out these executions. Um, in Mr. Perky's case, the second execution, the government wanted to move so quickly that we could not leave. Um, we were held at the media center Overnight, we were then moved into vans and held in vans for five hours, um, all at, kind of out of the fear that it would take too long to call us back and rescreen us, and there was a possibility that um, that would cause a delay in the execution. Would you go through this again? Would you witness another federal execution? It's a question I've been tooling with for the for the last few days. There is a fourth execution scheduled for late August. Um, after the, the second execution, I told my editors, essentially, I wanted to come back to Washington. We brought in another reporter um, from Chicago to witness the, the third execution. Um, I'm not totally sure yet whether or not I would be ready to, to cover another execution in person. Um, it was it was a lot. Um, certainly, my editors had warned me that this was, um, you know, going to be a lot to, to see, to to you know, that much death to see in a, in a week. Um, and I had understood that. And, and for, you know, weeks beforehand, I was saying, I understand this. I, I get it. It's fine. I'm, I'll be fine. Um, but I guess it, it just kind of remains to be seen. I, I just don't know yet whether I'll be ready to, to do it again. The headline, one reporter, two executions and haunting last words. Michael Belsalmo covers this for the Associated Press, Justice Department reporter, witnessing the executions in Terre Haute, Indiana. We thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, the weekly is available on the web at cspan.org slash podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcast. And also be sure to follow all of our programming on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.